Hello everyone and welcome to When Life Gives You Lemons, our wee podcast about tackling and coping with some of life's challenges, hosted by me, Jenny McIntyre, and founder of Let's, Michael Byrne. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Byrne. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of When Life Gives You Lemons. Today I'm joined by uh, Jenny again and I'm also joined by an incredible Emma, um, who we're going to speak to today. Um, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Be- getting through the lockdown hangover right now, but I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah, I'm all good, Michael. I'm just kind of staring out the window at this absolutely miserable day, but other than that, everything's grand. I should say so that Emma gets a pass on this. We're recording this on a Saturday morning. It's not like we're recording it on a Wednesday night and Emma's got a hangover or anything on a Wednesday night. This is a Saturday morning for us recording, so... This is a semi-respectable kind of hangover. I was all right, only had a few beers. Sometimes that's the worst, though, I find. You maybe just have one or two and you feel worse than if you had ten. That's exactly it. And usually I don't get hangovers, but I've been... um, I've changed my diet this week, so I was feeling really sluggish, and I changed my diet to be a wee bit healthier. I've been back at my training, and I, I honestly see the first week of trying to be healthy again. You feel worse than what you were when you were ordering Deliveroo and Uber Eats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's almost like a, a that detox thing, isn't it? You have to go through the process yeah. of getting all the, the rubbish out, you know, the, the previous diet before the, the, the current diet kind of kicks in, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then I kind of, you know, added beer onto that <laughs> diet. I'm just envious, Emma, because I've got a three-year-old in the house and I've not had a drink for six months. So I've, I've not been one of these people who's had you know, like lockdown parties with some beers and all that. I've I've not even had a chance. So for six for six months now, I've not even had a drink. So I look oh. forward to the first one. <laughs> but that's one thing. I've um, if the, if there's anything that I've been missing, one of the main things is a sauna, particularly for like a Sunday morning. If you have had a few drinks on the Saturday night, so I, I don't oh, know yeah. how long it'll be until I can go for a sauna again. But it's it's definitely in my top five of things I'm missing. I. I think that's, when that, I, I all that sort of stuff reopens again, I think there'll be a queue for saunas, like one person <laughs> in for 10 minutes and one person out sort of thing, you know, one in yeah. one. I know. I've been trying to turn my bathroom into a sauna, just like making the bath as hot as possible. <laughs> my mum's going to kill me, it's going to end up with mould everywhere. <laughs> so it's a major stop. <laughs> it's definitely extreme in, in the strange times that we're in, but I just want to say, Emma, it's been it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Um We've been waiting to get you on now for uh, a few weeks, so delighted that we have you on. So I'm, I'm going to see what it is that you do, and maybe you can just explain a wee bit about your life journey, mm-hmm. what, how, what's what yeah. took you to do what you do just now, and we can just take it from there. So I know that you're a trainee psychotherapist in, pencil, in person-centred experiential therapies. Um, that's a yeah. bit of a mouthful for me, particularly on a Saturday. It's a tongue twister. Can you tell us <laughs> what it is that... That, that actually is and a wee bit about how you actually got to got into um, that career yeah so my my modality essentially it's a humanistic form of therapy and counseling so it's i know you probably heard like a lot about cbt mm-hmm. where they do a lot of cognitive behavioral it's more like thoughts um with my psychotherapy we aren't the experts in the room so we are just sitting down with someone, human to human, just relating. 
you bring up what you want to bring up and we don't tell you, you know, you've got this diagnosis, you've got that diagnosis, you must be doing this or that. We're essentially just there saying, right, so that's your experience and we get in it with you. And we're basically kind of there to guide you through what you're finding difficult and kind of give that that ear and that support. And essentially like, it is like love that you're sharing in the room with somebody at that point because a lot of people, and I'm sure you guys have been through it as well, as well as myself, is you don't get a lot of unconditional support a lot of the time, even from people that you're really close mm-hmm. to. And you don't want to open up about things because you've got this this idea of I should be this perfect person that deals with everything. So having an hour in a room with someone that's not going to judge you kind of takes the limitations away of having to be that perfect person or even just say that this is what I would like to be and then kind of exploring that with someone that's not going to say, well, oh, that doesn't sound right. You don't sound right. So, yeah, it's, it's that. And I came to doing therapy can't believe that I'm actually in a master's now. It's been about seven years in the well, making. Well uh, um, I came to it because I was in um, a really abusive relationship when I was 15 and it kind of continued mm-hmm. on. I got I got out of the relationship, but for a long, long period of time, I just didn't cope with the aftermath of it. Um, and I didn't, I didn't actually get any help. I didn't get therapy. And even though it was only about, so what, I was 15, I'm really no good at maths here, but it was about 13, 14 years ago, and you would think that's not that long ago. The police would be fantastic at things like this, with domestic violence and stalking, but stalking wasn't even a crime then. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get anything. I wasn't offered um, a restraining order, and I was kind of just left to deal with it myself at a really young age. And from that, I I ended up going to university where I did get therapy and um, I was diagnosed with um, PTSD, anxiety and depression. And for all those years, I thought that I was just the weirdest human on the planet that would just have these over dysregulated reactions to things that other people, I always describe it as like, people would feel it at like a three and I would feel it at like an 11 plus. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't know what it was. And I I spent a lot of time really hating myself, really angry at the world and then also really angry at myself. And I just didn't get any help through it and I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And having that moment when um, I, I finally went to therapy and they said to me, well, Look, we want to get you in touch with a mental health nurse and we want to get you chatting to them because we feel that you need to speak to them first before you actually access the counselling. And I was like, oh, geez, right, they're saying there's no hope for me. <laughs> That's what you're getting there, isn't it? Yeah, it was kind of like I was going in dead proud of myself. Right, I'm going to get counselling. And they're saying, right, wait, actually, you need to speak to someone a bit senior. And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, wait, there's the <laughs> first worry. one. Um, and... I was like, right, okay. And I was dead anxious and I was like, what are they going to say to me? And do you know what? I've never been a fan of labels, but actually getting the diagnosis was really comforting because it was like, right, okay, so things have happened in my life that are the reason why that I react the way that I do, where I was having like 
was having four panic attacks a day. I was sitting in the flat and there would be wind going through. There was a, a um, building um, that, that had nobody in it. It was, it was in the process of being built. And the wind would go through it. And I didn't know it. at the time. It just sounded like loud banging. And that would be me. I'd be off. Like, I couldn't... Yeah function like I couldn't speak like the full body sensations completely went over and I and and I remember my boyfriend being like it's just wind it's all right and I just had to walk myself in the toilet because I was absolutely terrified but I didn't know what I was terrified Mm -hmm. of and it was just hard like really hard but therapy really really helped me kind of work through it don't get me wrong I still get like that but I know what it is now and I've got some ways I ground myself to not be to not let it consume me almost Whereas before, because I didn't know what it was, it completely consumed me and it was terrifying. And I was just stuck inside my head. That's uh, some of the some of the things you you spoke of there. I can absolutely relate to. And, and when I got my mm. diagnosis, I know you heard me talk, but when I got my diagnosis of complex PTSD, I was the happiest man alive mm-hmm. to be diagnosed with a mental illness because it meant yeah. that <laughs> I could go and find out about it. I could, you know, it wasn't. A, you hear all these internal voices in your mind saying you're weird, you're this, you're that. Everybody. And you're yeah. not, blah blah blah. But when you know, when I got that diagnosis, I thought, brilliant, now I can go and find out about it and I can find out why I have been the way I've been. Uh, mm-hmm. and when you mm-hmm. did that about exactly. your, your boyfriend saying and your partner saying it's just the wind, it's really strange because mm. like that for other people, it's just the wind for them. But for when you've got a diagnosis, yeah. it's not the wind, it's it's all your memories, no. it's all your being inside you that it's coming back to you. So I can totally relate to uh, the, some of the things you said there, it's incredible. And I think that's sometimes yeah. kind of half, half the battle. I mean, if you've got, say, I don't know, take, for example, like a sore chest, you go to the doctor to find out what it is. And as soon as you know, it's just a chest infection. And if you take these antibiotics, you'll feel better. That's half the battle. So when we're talking about our brain yeah. and our mind and our thinking process, why should that be any different? You know, we we, we should be treating it kind of the same because like you're saying, as soon as you knew what it was, you're almost then on your journey to kind of, you know, trying to make yourself feel better. Yeah, and that's what it is. It's kind of like, it's, and exactly what you were saying and describing it, and Michael, when you are saying I'm the happiest man on the planet, you get a mental health diagnosis. It, it does feel like that because you're finally, for me, there was a big, there was two parts of it. There was one that was like, right, actually, hold on, everybody that was telling me that I was a psycho <laughs> and that I was, a drama queen and I was being over dramatic and I was too sensitive and I was too emotional. I was like, hold on, actually I can own this and I've got a right and I'm valid and being emotional and having those reactions. And there was other side of it that also made me realise as well though that, you know, a lot of my behaviours, um, because I wasn't very nice for a period of time. I used to lash out and I, I used to lash out at people and I hurt people's feelings and I was quite nasty and I was angry. And I wasn't proud of it at all. And I always say there's an explanation, but there's not an excuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it also gave me so much autonomy in that. Yeah, it's that thing about taking ownership, isn't it? It's really easy sometimes yeah. to blame the world and to blame everyone else. And and, I, and I, I don't blame anything for what happened to me, but what I take as responsibility for my actions, because like you, I know I hurt a lot of people when I was when I was really unwell yeah. and I and I wouldn't seek help. And I knew I was horrible to a lot of people. Um, and I don't say, yeah. oh, my illness made me do that. Now I take responsibility and think I should have got help sooner. But actually, I regret all of those things. And I wish I hadn't hurt the people that I hurt. But now 
about yeah. saying, okay, that that the feelings that I felt then aren't what I feel now, or I'm I can cope and manage the feelings a lot better now. Um, but I don't give it as an I don't make it an excuse for all the things that I've done in the past, you know. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a, it's a really hard it's a really hard part of it as well because you need to show yourself compassion. Yeah. So you can go one way or the other because that, that's what I used to do. I'd either be one way or the other. I'd be like really super defensive and shut down and be like, well, it wasn't my fault. Or I'd be at the other side being like, you're such a horrible human being. You don't deserve mm. to have these friends or the, this family or this relationship. Sure. Like you don't deserve it because you're horrible. And then just finding a middle ground of being like, right, okay, I'm sorry that I've done that and I don't want to react that way and I don't want to hurt people. And also in the same breath being like, I'm taking ownership of this, so I've I've actually empowered myself because I've accepted that I am not just this combination of this mental health, but also there's me in that. There's more to it than that, and I can say sorry about it, but also say sorry to myself for beating myself up so bad about it as Definitely. well. And, and one of the things I always say is about just actually taking responsibility, and, and, and you say that a mm-hmm. minute ago is owning your illness. See, when you own your illness and start to think, actually, I'm okay about this, I'm, you know, I... I kind of wear it as a badge of honour now that I went through what I went through, probably like yourself, and thought, you know, I survived that, I got through it, and, and okay, it's perfectly normal to have this illness as a result of going through that, so I shouldn't feel like a failure, I shouldn't feel judged, I feel okay yeah. with that now, and, and you kind of think, I've, I got through all that, I survived it, and because of that, I've got, you know, complex PTSD, and that's okay, because it's perfectly yeah. normal to have that illness as a result of all of those things, uh, not blaming yeah. the world for it, you know? And was there something, Emma, that kind of triggered in you that kind of helped you to identify, okay, I I really need to kind of reach out here and 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 ask for help because I really can't cope with this on my own. I need, I need yeah. someone to kind of help me with this. Yeah, I th- I think I'd always knew deep down that I needed help, but I didn't. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, <laughs> and as much as I can be an open book about speaking about things. Um, I, I used to find it really, really difficult to articulate my own feelings in it. So I'd be able to tell you the bare bones of what had happened to mm-hmm. me. Like I'd say oh, I was in an abusive relationship, there was assault and, you know, these things happened. Um, but I would very rarely be like, I was absolutely devastated. I was terrified to go to school. I was, you know, anxious about myself. I lost a lot of friendships. I hated myself. I wouldn't speak about that part of it. And that stayed under wraps for a very long period of time until um, we were out. Actually, I was out with Alexis one night and this was a horrific, horrific night. Um, and um, it's only been a, a year or two, I think, since, or maybe more, um, since the breakup with the, the abusive partner. And um, he was in this nightclub. And I just shut down and I remember turning to Alexis and I was like, he, he's going to do something, like he is going to do something. She's like, you're fine, we'll go out. And just as that moment where we decided we we're going to leave you through a glass pint at my head that missed me by about two inches and smashed off the wall. And I just, I, I, I can kind of, I, sometimes I don't know if this is my memory of the afterwards or if it's Alexis telling me because I completely shut down. And because I shut down, I like went into autopilot where it's just your visceral reactions and I'd fell down the stairs so I was in such a panic to get down the fire exit that when I eventually got outside Alexa said she just she ran after me I'd like hurt on my arm because I stumbled all the way down the stairs um, and 
well, stumbled or mm. tumbled. And I was outside and I was like cradled in the fetal position, just rocking. Now, MD walking past must have been like, what is going on? You would have thought I was on drugs. Like, you would have thought that. And says just found me rocking, being like, he's going to kill us. Like, he's, he's absolutely going to kill us. And um, she had to to pick me up and bless her. What an amazing friend. Like, I'm so fortunate to have the friends that I do in my life. She um, She picked me up and she took me on the bus, cradled me the whole way from town to White Inch on this busy 62 bus at night with me, like, in no way in psychological contact, like, completely shut down and got me home and stayed with me in my house and calmed me down, put me to bed. And you would have thought that was the moment that I was like, right, I need help. But I didn't. I got up the next day and I was like, right, we'll get on with Mm -hmm. it. And I started going, I ended up going out a lot in the club scene. I started working in the club scene. Um, I worked in the bars, I worked as a PR and I was drinking quite heavily. And as soon as I drank heavily, I'd immediately end up in a fight with someone as in, um, it was always a male. It was very rarely a female. It was always a male. There was so much rage in me that I couldn't actually vocalise in a healthy way that when I got drunk, and even one way a man looking at me or a man saying something to me that was just a hint of aggression, that was me, I was off. And I am tiny. I am five foot nothing and I have not got a lot of strength in me. But I would have took on Goliath and it was because I was so mm-hmm. angry because I wasn't accessing help. And it wasn't until I went to America um I'd left the club scene behind, which, by the way, there was a lot of fun in that club scene as well. I did enjoy it, but it just wasn't healthy for me. And I, I hurt a lot of people as well when I was I was working in that point. But I ended up going to America. My cousin referred to me um, to go to Camp America. And it was a camp for kids that um, needed additional support, like special educational needs. And I arrived I loved it and I was completely myself watching alls I was crying I was angry it was okay to be angry it was okay to be upset and I shared so much of like what had went on for me and I found these most amazing people that were just incredibly like they, they didn't judge they were so loving and nurturing and it was just such an amazing environment and my other mates that never went to camp <laughs> slagged me for this because they, they were like oh you went you went where you went to camp america <laughs> um but it genuinely was a turning point in my life it changed and not to sound cliche i owe so much to summit camp because working with those kids and working with the people that i did and it wasn't even working we were a family and we still are a family it's been seven years and I've still got best friends that I FaceTimed now, obviously lockdown, but I see before the lockdown all the time and we spend a lot of time together and that just completely pieced me back together and that's when I met my now boyfriend and um, I moved to Liverpool and that's when I actually started to seek help because he pointed out to me, he was like, there's something going on, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I think you need to speak to someone and I was like, right. Yeah, I do. And it was a long time. Cause it took a, it took a long time. So I, like, I was feeling that from what fifteen, and I didn't seek help until I was twenty three. Yeah. So it was a long period of time. And I suppose by that point, the, there's a lot to kind of untangle because you've kind of and Michael and I have discussed it a few times. 
you've worn that kind of suit of armour for, for all those years, yeah. kidding on that everything's okay, and actually it's not. Um, and so when you went to uni, was that when you started training in the psychotherapist? So i done, um, what i done is that the first year in 2013, I came back, I'd never really felt that I was that exceptionally good at anything or my jobs. I was working in finance and um, it was just, it was boring. I just, I couldn't stand it. And when I came back to America, I was like, do you know what? I want to be a counsellor. I want to do this. And I always thought, we lassie from Milton, Scottsdale, do you know what I mean? Working class background. How is she going to get into this middle class tier kind of <laughs> job? Because when you think of like psychotherapy and things like that, you don't think you know, there's this demograph of us that that you you think of like a middle-aged white woman, you know, and that's the kind of idea that you have in your head. And there is a lot of barriers to get in because it's expensive. So I decided to do my counselling skills because you had to start off with that. Then I went and done my HNC. And then when I moved to Liverpool, it was because it was too expensive for me to go and do the training. It was about... 10 grand I would have needed and I was like I'm not in the position to be able to fund mm-hmm. that myself mm-hmm. so I went and got a degree um, and that's where I got the help as well through the university amazing university Liverpool Hope um, and then at the end of my degree I was like do you know what I'm going to do it I'm going to apply for the masters I'm going to apply for Strathclyde didn't think I'd get in because um, it was really really competitive and I actually got an email one day saying um, to give them a call because I'd been phoning them up and one woman in the morning when I phoned said I was on a wait list and that was me. I was in floods of tears, absolutely devastated. Like, I'm not good enough to get in. My boyfriend's trying to calm me down being like, right, this is one of the moments where she's at an 11 and it's really a bit of three or four. <laughs> and um, what happened was they actually mixed it up and I phoned them back in the afternoon, like, oh, no, we're just waiting on you to accept your place. And I was like, where's the email? I didn't get the email. <laughs> um, and so I accepted it. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely love it. But at the same time, it has been the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Because in therapy, like, the, I think a lot of people think therapists have got their stuff mm-hmm. together. The majority of do not. <laughs> Like we don't. We're human beings the same as anybody else. And when I started this, we really need to open ourselves up. Like we're opening ourselves up to everything, the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves that we don't like. And it's my tutor always says that like you're opening the cupboard and everything's a wee bit all messed around and you're taking everything out and then you're putting it back in to make it tidier. So all the things are still there. <laughs> They're just in a neater way that you can see it more clearly. And I just thought that was such a nice like, way to put it because that's what it feels like. Yeah, I, I totally understand. It's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Because I think we we all hear a lot that, you know, you have jumbled up thoughts, jumbled up memories and all that. And yeah. when, when I was going through it, my uh, psychotherapist would kind of say the same thing. She would say that, you know, it's kind of like a filing cabinet, you know, where you've got all these memories, some of them are in order, some of them are hidden, some of them are misfiled. Uh, what we all, all we want to try exactly. and do is just kind of put them in a good filing system, you know, so that a wee bit like you said there, Emma, is that it's, that it's kind of neat and tidy. Uh, and I really like that. It's just like the cover thing. It's a great analogy that, that me as a patient um, uh, or a client, whatever, I found that really useful way of explaining it to, to me. So I really yeah. like the analogy. Well done. It's great. It is. 
It's just something like that you need as well. So no, 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 It's um, I think it, even when you're saying that as well, um, another part of it that I found with myself, like as being the client and also being the therapist, is you really need to find someone that you click yeah. with that kind of gets you and the way that you speak as well because I had a therapist um that just we just didn't match we we didn't gel we weren't connecting and it's like yeah. anything like if you meet somebody you connect with them or you mm-hmm. don't and that's all right and I think a lot of people get put off a of therapy because they'll go to therapy they'll meet a therapist they won't gel and they'll be like right therapy's not for me and it might just be that you didn't click with that therapist and it's yeah. not like the therapist is doing it wrong or you're doing it wrong these are just two people that just don't merge together. And I had a fantastic therapist who was a wee scouser and she swore and she'd be right in amongst it with me. And I, I loved her for it because it made me feel it made me feel less um almost like under the microscope mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. feeling like I had to, you know, kind of be something in that room that wasn't myself that you can find because there is a bit of a power imbalance when you're sitting in a room with a therapist, is even if in my modality where we're person-centered and you know the the client's the expert we do hold some power in that room that we need to acknowledge as well and the client can feel it mm-hmm. you know if they're coming to you with really vulnerable stuff you need to be really side by side with them and letting them know that they can take the lead in it and I think that was important for me in my sessions anyway is being the client is having someone that can kind of access with me what I the way I kind of explain my experiences especially at the beginning when I found it too overwhelming and the emotions were too much if she was to go too deep into it with me I think I would have shut down and just left the mm-hmm. room and I wouldn't have went back so there's the fine line with that as well just finding someone that matches you and I, th- I think as well kind of finding that level of trust and comfort because if you're going to open up to yeah. somebody and kind of let them into your deepest darkest thoughts almost you want to feel comfortable when you're doing that hundred percent you do and and I found it myself you know and I think the basis especially for me anyway of course providing the therapy but with my clients like I enjoy the work that I do with my clients and I enjoy my clients and a lot of what we do together is building a relationship you know there's an alliance there I'm not expecting someone to come into a room and tell me about all their wounds straight off the bat they don't know me yet they don't trust me yet and that's that's pretty standard stuff as being a human if you're wanting to relate to someone you're wanting to make sure it's safe mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. it's it about building the confidence I always remember when I uh, I'd, you know my story and I got therapy years ago I tried to get therapy CBT therapy and I remember it had to stop mm. because I was doing more damage to myself but that's because I, I wasn't mm. fully engaged and I wasn't really being honest uh, and then when I um, got help at the Glasgow Psychological Trauma Centre and I, I met my psychologist for the first time. She was incredible. She had a Canadian accent. And I know that the accent doesn't really matter, but I was really <laughs> engaged with it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For some reason, didn't feel any threat. And she, probably exactly the same as, as you're doing, Emma, she allowed me to just try to find me because here I was for the very first time opening up about a whole mm-hmm. load of trauma, a whole load of stuff. And I was scared. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was really scared. Mm-hmm probably have this as well i'm really scared of opening up that door 
Because if everything yeah. comes out, what if I kind of get the door shut again, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But then what you realise is that it's okay. Well, you know, the door's not going to swing wide open all of a sudden. We're just going to open the door a wee bit at a time, whenever you're ready and at a pace that you're ready. At. And I learned to be able to do that. Um, and it was fantastic for me. I, I, I was on a, uh, I was doing a talk during the week, and uh, one of the questions I got mm. asked is, "Who's been one of the biggest influences in your recovery?" And I say, I mm. always say that it was that that lady uh, at the Glasgow Psychological Trauma Centre, the one I mentioned now, but yeah. uh, for her own privacy, or whatever. But I always say that she's one of the main reasons why I recovered the way I did, and, I, and I'm always and in, in, uh, you know an amazing debt of gratitude towards the lady, you know. Yeah, and it's it's exactly that what you're saying, Michael. It's about opening the door a wee bit, but also you're the one that opens the door. You know, I think the worst thing that you can ever do, especially with trauma, is having someone that is going to tell you to open it wide open when you're not ready and forcing you because it's just, it will do more harm than good. And even as a, a trainee therapist as well, like we know trauma is, it's, it's something that needs to be handled with a lot of care a lot of attention and a lot of gentleness and there's I've known even myself speaking about my own trauma um and digesting it and I'm still processing it now is that being pushed into speaking about it just made me go the other way because I just wasn't I wasn't ready at the time to kind of face it I just wasn't I was trying to do everything to kind of avoid it and I was hoping that it would just go away Mm I was hoping that it wouldn't be loud enough that I would just be able to be like right it's been 10 years now, that's it, it's over and done with, but no, you need to, you need to go through the sticky stuff, unfortunately, to, to come out the other side and be okay with it. And sometimes you're never okay with it. You'll get days where you will feel like you're going back mm-hmm. a wee bit, and I think that's all yeah. right as well. It's that acceptance, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I fully yeah. always say, and whenever I'm talking to clients and on a, on a completely different level, um, I always say that, you know, I always view myself as in recovery, a little bit like, you know, maybe Alcoholics Anonymous or, or drug recovery. I always view my mental mm. health as I'm always going to be in recovery. So if I treat it that way yeah. and I have a bad day, then it's okay to have a bad day. I just have to make sure that I don't have the next day as another bad day and just continue on that. I give myself a pass mm-hmm. to think, Do you know what, it's okay because regular people, if I want to call them that, regular people wake up in the, of a day and just sometimes don't feel great either. So sometimes it's just about saying, Okay, I don't feel great today, yeah. but it doesn't mean it's going to be the end of the road for me or I need to, you know, for me it was about what to commit suicide. I don't have to go to that. I just have to sometimes accept, no, I don't feel great today, and that's okay. Yeah, and exactly that. And it's that it's all right. And I think it's because we well, for me myself anyway, I was so obsessed over a cure over one day I will never ever feel like this again. But I'm changed from my trauma. I'm 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 still at the core of me, my personality, but I'm changed mm-hmm. for it. And I'm I'm living with it. And I think for a long time I wanted to cut off that part of me, not realizing that it was me. And now I'm like, well, do you know what, Emma? This is who you are. And you're okay with that and it's also all right for you to be pissed off at yourself as well on days where you feel that you're not going through it the best like I feel like we we talk a lot about how we come out of it and I like the way that you're saying it Michael about it being in recovery because I feel when you're saying oh I'm out the other side now it kind of feels almost like oh well it will never happen again and that's not the case like even last week like I've not felt like suicidal and had those thoughts in a long long time and 
in the last week, the week before, it just, it, it really, really consumed mm-hmm. me. And I felt horrendous. I was going in and out of that numb feeling to then over emotional, couldn't get my thoughts in place. I felt, I get this feeling where I feel trapped almost. And it doesn't matter where I go, I still feel trapped. But I feel like I need to get out of the house or I need to go somewhere else. But it follows me. And I, I, do you know what? I, I went out the house and it was on one of the sunny days and I walked down the street and I sat down by myself. And it's really funny. It was actually really nice. I was sitting with my beats on and this little dog and I was crying, but I had my sunglasses on so you wouldn't have known I was crying. And this wee dog just came up and like jumped on me and started licking my face and knocked the glasses off. And I was like, oh, that's just lovely. And that, the dog doing that made me, it sounds dead silly, but it made me text my best mate, Alexis, and I texted her and went, I'm really no good mm. today. Can we talk? And we, the both of us were feeling the same. Yeah. And we just spoke through it. And it, honestly, I, I'm not saying I felt 100 times better, but I felt because I was able to share it with someone yeah. and I got it off my chest, there was that part of it that felt more soothing. Absolutely. So much of what's kind of been said today, um, it's making me think, I don't know if you guys have ever read The Chimp Paradox. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's all about that kind of stored information and, and the chimp trying to kind of overpower your thoughts and, and you then kind of taking control of it. And and by making that call to Alexis, that's you kind of taking control of yourself and telling the chimp, yeah. you know, you're not you're not going to control me at, at this point. Um, but you're right, talking to somebody just instantly makes you feel that so much better yeah i, I really like exactly the, the way you put that there emma because I, the way i look at that is that uh, and it's just me uh, that you were you know you you removed yourself from the house you went and sat on the bench and the dog came to you i believe all those things were meant to happen to you to go and text uh, or, or speak with uh, alexis or, or whomever and, that, and that's the way i look at life now that it's kind of a bit like dot to dots, a dot to dot yep. book that you just never really know where one dot's going to take you to and take you to. And, you know, when you were telling that story, I thought it was beautiful because in my head, I'm hearing it as you went to the bench, the dog licked you, kind of almost like clicked you out of where you were to be proactive yeah. to deal with it. And I, always, I just think that it's when you see those things, they're all beautiful things that can happen to you, but it's being aware of them sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it. And it's just... Um... Because it's really hard because when you are in that moment and you you do feel incredibly restricted on being able to speak to anybody because you don't like yourself in that mm-hmm. moment. Like, you're not happy with yourself. And more than that, you, you, you get, for me anyway, I get dead paranoid. I get paranoid to the point that I feel that nobody likes me, that I'm completely worthless, mm-hmm. that even saying to them that I feel this way is embarrassing and that and I'm a therapist, do you know what I mean? I'm a therapist yep. in training and I feel like that. Have you then been doing any work throughout the lockdown um with regards to yes. your psychotherapy <laughs> and, and other bits and bobs or or what what have you kind of been up to over the last few weeks? So um I'm still working. I've been working since I started my master's so I work um I can't say who it is oh. but I work for an organisation um, with Public Health England and Scottish Government okay. and it's just providing support and help online over the phone um, for anyone that is struggling with substance misuse. Okay. Um, 
and I've also I'm still doing my university so I'm still seeing clients over the phone and online as well so I've been doing the zoom zoom sessions mm-hmm. and telephone sessions which I think is personally important because there's been so many services that have shut down and I'd already get on my political box <laughs> about it anyway but the funding is ridiculous um so what you've got now is a lot of services like experience um services have shut down in Glasgow and actually on the outskirts of like um Edinburgh as well and you've got all these people halfway through their therapy or just starting the therapy being completely abandoned um mm-hmm. so they're coming to ourselves and we've got my placements at the the research clinic Strathclyde University Mm-hmm. Um, and we offer up to 40 sessions. We offer 20 sessions for free. Um, the part of it is that we ask if our clients are okay being recorded. And okay. the, it's completely anonymised and it's confidential as well. But we are still open if anybody does need support. We are person-centred. Um, we offer all, online and over the phone. I also know that Wellbeing Scotland um, are still um operating they're still open they're offering online um and telephone i'm sure um but you can get in touch with them on their website or give them a call with ourselves um you would need to send an email um but i can attach that to let's share in this as well yeah yeah we're, we're still open and we i think right now I think it'd be good for people to know that there's still actually places they can go and from even in their own home to call up and speak to somebody, you know. Yeah, I've I've noticed over the last couple of weeks as well that my organisation's had a real upturn in people contacting us, almost like saying, "Are you open? Because we yeah. we need help, or we you know we need mental health training courses. We need we need these things." Yeah. And everywhere's closed. It's a wee. I just and I'm not being judgmental anyway. It's a wee bit for me like Christmas, you know, like all the, a lot of big yeah. organisations who provide help close down at Christmas when it's the most vulnerable time. Absolutely. The most vulnerable time for a lot of people and it's when yeah. they, they really need access to help. And I, you know, I get that it's a pandemic, but um, I think that the more organisations that can provide support during the most difficult time um, is really going to be beneficial for, for anyone who's struggling. Because I, I've kind of said, you know, I think when you have, a history of mental health then you have coping mechanisms that might get you through this um but for people who've never had those coping mechanisms in yeah. place and now to reach out for help for it you know to, to organizations to be closed makes it more and more difficult then you know yeah, yeah. that's what i was just going to say was that there's, there's going to be people just now who've kind of never needed to reach out for any support and never kind of struggled with their mental health and they're going to find just now that they are really struggling um, yeah. and it's crucial that kind of services are there to to support people through this time that's that's it and I've even seen it myself and my friends like I'm trying to check in with my family I'm trying to check in with my mates to be like how how are you doing and just doing that I always like to do the the rule of like two or three so when you get the I'm fine I'm fine the Ross (laughs) friends I'm fine (laughs) I always do the like Right, okay, that, that that doesn't sound fine. How actually are you? Are you all right? Do you, do you need a chat? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, but you can just hear that. And I've always found, see that that word fine or saying I'm fine, it means absolutely, I don't think it actually has a definition. Like, no. it, it has too many meanings. Like, yeah. there's, 
It is, isn't it? A, it's yeah. a sad of what we're in, isn't it? I, I, I wrote something recently, and it's kind of like when, when you ask somebody and they say, I'm no bad. And it's yeah. okay. It's almost like we accept that when somebody says, I'm no bad, that that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We live in that, I'm all right, I'm no bad. Actually, we, and we think that's okay, because if you then go, generally, if you ask the person, they'll go, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Actually, if we were just a wee bit more open and saying, yeah. you know what, I'm finding it a bit tough just now. And, and I kind of hope that one of the things that comes out of all of this lockdown is that, you know, the reduction in stigma around mental, sorry, hopefully that reduction in stigma around mental health and hopefully people being more open and susceptible yeah. to saying, mm-hmm. you know what, I'm finding things tough just now, you know. Yeah, and I think I'm seeing a lot more of that now. Like, I'm seeing a lot more people being open about it. I've um, always tried to be as open as possible. I've never really put it on my Facebook or said anything um because there was that that shame of you get the kind of sense sometimes that you're like oh people are going to think I'm just attention seeking or mm-hmm. I'm just um I'm I'm putting that out there to 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 get sympathy and it's like it's actually when it comes to mental health like sympathy is the scariest part of it like accepting compassion for it mm-hmm. is terrifying because for me it used to make me feel less than that I couldn't deal with it myself, that I had to ask other people. And coming from a background where I have had to be incredibly independent from a young age, um, it didn't sit right with me that someone else could help or that they should. And it wasn't on them, it was on me. I was feeling that I was being defeatist and not solving my own problems, Mm -hmm. which isn't the case because, you know, you'll have days where you will just be like, I just don't feel like moving from this position right now and I mm-hmm. feel absolutely lousy about myself. I really don't like myself. And I think it's all right to not do anything in those moments as well and just be like, right, this is how I'm feeling with it. You know, because we get a lot of like, well, you should be out, you should be doing this for yourself, you should be making sure that you're eating well and you should be making do and all those things are great, but in those moments I think just don't beat yourself up. If that's how you're feeling in that moment, it can be fleeting. It can last a while, but just don't beat yourself up because you've no managed to do the main things that you feel that you should be doing. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure with that under the lockdown. I felt as well. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think I'm very much of, of the thing that happiness and feeling content it, it has to come from within, inside you. But to get there, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with having the support and the help that you need to get yourself there. Yeah. Um, so so yeah it's it's just trying to raise the awareness that it's it's okay to reach out yeah that it's it's actually and the funny the funny thing is from doing a lot of like the research in my my course as well and we need to go through quite a lot of transcripts um of of previous sessions from years and years ago and the most common theme that comes up is that oh i don't i don't want to be a burden yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. want to be a burden and do you know what we've went through about 50 papers and every single person is saying the exact same thing mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we're all feeling the same mm-hmm. but we just don't want to say it out loud to each other yeah absolutely and and, and I, I always say that you know and when I talk to people because you have these voices in your head saying 
don't talk about it. You're fearful of judgment and you're hearing all these yeah. voices. You're worthless and nobody's going to get you. Nobody's going to understand. And yet this, the mental health statistics show that at any given time, one in four people could be struggling with it. And I was going to yeah. say that, see, if you just took that in the population of Scotland alone, that's over a million people at this moment in time could be feeling exactly the same as yeah. you. The last mm-hmm. thing you are is alone. The last mm-hmm. thing you are is a burden because everyone else, you know, there's a fair percentage are kind of in the same boat. You know, yeah. you're not alone. You just don't think that, but. You just don't feel it. And that's, I think that's a bit of the dissonance, isn't it? It's the the brain and the head is saying something, but the feeling is completely different. And that's, that's what's painful because in those moments you can be like, right, on paper, I know that I'm not actually a bad person and that I do have friends and I do have this. But that feeling of the, the unworthiness is so real in that moment that that mm-hmm. takes over. And it can be overwhelming, and it's 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 hard in those moments to kind of reach out. And I'm just wondering, like, what can we do that would make it feel more safe for people in society to be able to say, "Well, this is how I'm feeling, and I do want to actually get help." Because I feel a lot of the the stigma does play into that unworthy feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Emma, it has been an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show today. Um, Thank you. I'm, by, uh, I'm in complete admiration uh, of everything that you do and everything that you've came through. And I know there's a lot of personal things in there. And I can just say thank you um, for sharing that with us today. I'm sure many listeners will, will certainly take inspiration and admiration from everything you've been through and that you're doing just now. No, thank you, guys. I was so excited to come on a podcast. I was you like, know, I've gone on I, a podcast. <laughs> I just absolutely love your positive vibe. It's amazing. Like, again, talking about all like your kind of personal experiences and things like that, but you just come across so positive. It's very refreshing. Thank you very much. Well, no, I've loved it because I've been listening to you guys as well. And I'm like, oh, Alexis, I really want to go on to the podcast. <laughs> no it's been great chatting with you guys and like hearing your stuff as well and it's just been really nice to kind of speak about it as well